On the 27th of December 1941, in a small island town in the North Norwegian fjords, a German soldier crunched through the snow back to his barracks. All was calm, apart from the sounds of Christmas songs still emanating from some of the bars and houses. Suddenly, in the distance, the thump of explosions and the bright lights of fireworks clearly showed people were still enjoying the Yuletide celebrations. However, on the edge of the town, a massive assault was actually underway. The fireworks were flares and the explosions were the sound of HMS Kenya's huge guns firing from the middle of the fjord. Within a few moments, hundreds of British commandos would be assaulting the peaceful hamlet. The biggest danger the Allies faced, essentially, was themselves. It always is. If this mission would have failed, then the commandos that I know and love would have ceased to exist. And that is a scary thought. Unknown to the raiders, the sleepy hamlet wasn't quite as dozy as they thought. Stationed in the town were an elite group of German mountain troops, hunters trained to kill with their deadly sniper rifles. This remarkable operation shows how desperate the situation for the British was at the time. Louis Mountbatten, the new head of combined operations, needed an easy and spectacular win. This is the incredible true story of how the Allies used the festive season to try and upset the German war machine. Sadly, not all of the heroes of this historic raid would make it back to their families. They were the commandos that grinched Christmas. I'm Bruce Crompton, history fanatic, military antique collector and ex-paratrooper. In Amazing War Stories, you're going to hear about incredible actions, all taken from records housed in museum collections. It's only by unearthing these wonderful tales that I hope to keep these important institutions and the heroes contained within them alive for future generations. As you can imagine, being a military antiques collector means that I'm often told about some weird and wonderful characters who fought in wars throughout the ages. But sometimes, however, you come across a story so special you literally can't believe your ears. I was recently chatting to a good friend. I suppose you could actually call him a frenemy because he's a commando and I'm an ex-para about the fact that there was no official Royal Marines Museum at the moment, but they are fundraising for one. Colonel Nick Cavill, who you may remember from our other war story, The Assassins of Alexandria, is a passionate supporter of military museums and we were discussing how we might help raise awareness for their appeal. If you wish to donate, there is a link to do so in our show notes. Anyway, as we chatted, our conversation veered off onto the subject of a legendary warrior called Jack Churchill. He was an extraordinary man and a soldier who was affectionately known as Mad Jack. Not only for his incredible courage, 
but also because he used to play the bagpipes. He had the freedom to lead exactly as he would wish. He was doing things like uh, you know, using his longbow in battle. He was the first man off the boat. He carried a claymore. Those are all pretty unconventional things. But it's often you know, the most unconventional people that really come to the fore when you're in an extraordinary position and an extraordinary situation like the Second World War. Jack Churchill holds an almost mythical status in the Royal Marine community. Another mate of mine who knows all about him is Jason Fox. Jason is an ex-Royal Marine commando and former Special Forces operator in the SBS. He was the archetypal commando. Big, strong, burly, good-looking, but loved being a soldier, loved getting down and dirty, rolling around in the mud and taking it to the enemy. The sort of person that you'd look at and be inspired by, but also in his actions, you would just, you know, the type of person you'd follow into battle. The story of fighting Jack Churchill and Operation Archery was one of the most exciting I'd ever heard especially as it happened over the Christmas period in 1941. The raid was an incredible tale of a combined operation that would see the commandos, the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force all work together with the Norwegian resistance to try and deliver a shockwave that would reverberate through the Nazi Empire. They thought the festive period was an ideal opportunity to strike a time when the Germans would be off guard. In fact, the Allies were so sure of its success, they sent along a photographer to capture what they thought would be a surefire victory. But this tale has a very different outcome. Our story is taken from extensive eyewitness testimony and documents written at the time. Everything you're about to hear is completely true, no matter how extraordinary it sounds. In October 1941, a young, tall, charismatic officer, dressed in his blue service uniform, strode into a smoke-filled operations room and shook hands with the other men present. It was obvious that some of the senior men in the room disapproved of this man as head of combined operations, especially as he only held the rank of naval captain. His name was Louis Mountbatten, and he was the cousin of the King of England. But that wasn't the reason he got the job. Winston Churchill wanted a fresher, more dynamic approach to tri-service operations and felt that the captain was just the person to put a spark into the Allies' flagging battle plans. Dr Chris Mann is the deputy head of the Department of War Studies at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. Mountbatten was certainly a divisive appointment. Many senior officers, particularly Chief of the Naval Staff, Dudley Pound, quite possibly wanted him to fail because they felt he'd been a political appointment, he'd been promoted too fast, and furthermore, many felt that the commandos shouldn't be wasted in these type of operations. These troops, they thought, the best in the British Army should probably stay with their respective regiments rather than be wasted on such high-risk activities such as this. Mountbatten's polished shoes struck the wooden floor purposefully as he gave his presentation in front of an enormous map of Europe. I think we've located 
This wooden pointer clicks on a region 220 miles northwest of Oslo. The target was two islands, the larger of which was only seven and a half by four miles wide. If an assault happened here, he believed, it would cause the Nazis to divert vital resources away from the Eastern Front, a place where the Germans were currently having much success. The other huge benefit was a successful attack would give the country a much needed morale boost, especially over the Christmas period. This area of the world housed a valuable industry, Norwegian fish oil. But the Germans had left the factories very lightly guarded and Mountbatten sensed an easy victory with far-reaching consequences. Fish oil um, was rich in vitamin A and was used by submarine crews who had no access to daylight for long periods of time to replace those vital vitamins. The oil could also be used in the production of glycerin, an essential ingredient in dynamite and other explosives. The main target island of Vorgsoy sat in a body of water called the Ulversund. It was here that the majority of the fish oil factories were located. A few hundred yards to the east was a smaller body of land called Morloy Island, today known as Moldern. This tiny piece of land hosted the defensive batteries that protected South Vorgsoy and the Sound. Both were isolated and remote. The final piece of the jigsaw that Mountbatten needed was more information. Over a thousand miles away on the small Norwegian island, a middle-aged man hurried through the thick snow, trying his best not to be seen. The local resistance member quickly entered a building and removed his Morse code transmitter from its hiding place behind a wooden panel and sent his report back to British intelligence. The coded information that winged its way back to London was that there were 2,500 civilians living in Vargsoe the only Germans present was a garrison of roughly 250 unmotivated troops, headed by a lacklustre German officer called Major Schroeder. The spy thought that for a force like the elite commandos, these Wehrmacht soldiers could easily be overcome. It was a shame then that on the other side of the town he didn't see a convoy of German trucks pull up at the barracks. Inside were highly experienced snipers who had recently returned from the brutal Eastern Front and were looking forward to some much needed rest and recuperation. German command thought that the tiny island was the perfect place for them. Nothing would happen to them in this quiet part of their empire. So ironically, both the British and Germans thought their troops were going to have an easy ride of it in Vargsoe. But nothing could be further from the truth. In terrible conditions on a windswept beach in Western Scotland, the men of Three Commando practice yet another amphibious landing. The sound of Jack Churchill's bagpipes rang out through the air, despite the ferocity of the weather. A man stood at the edge of the dunes, 
watching the eccentric commando's kilted white legs jump from the landing craft and smiled as he heard him encourage his men up the beach. These elite soldiers had been chosen to make the assault of Barksdale and were commanded by Lieutenant Colonel John Durnford Slater. This big-hearted officer got the best out of his men. It was said that he could drink all night in the mess, parade the next day as fresh as a daisy, train in the morning and play a good game of rugger in the afternoon, seasickness being his only weakness. Jason Fox knows exactly what it's like to prepare for a big mission behind enemy lines. So Durford Slater and uh, Jack Churchill were those type of men that were just great leaders who inspired the men and gave them great confidence when it came to going into battle. I mean, I've been in situations where you're training specifically, but without in-depth knowledge. So you're being told, right, you're gonna be doing a commando raid. The enthusiasm is unbelievable. Like the, the sense of purpose. Everyone knows that you're gonna be going on some dangerous mission and it, it's an amazing buzz. It's difficult to explain. The plans weren't for the faint hearted, but they were seemingly simple. One, destroy the fish oil factories and the battery emplacements that protected this vital industry. Two, secure the town of South Volksoy, as it was then known. Gather all German intelligence and kill as many enemy troops as possible. Three, capture all local Norwegian Nazi collaborators, also known as Quislins, for further interrogation. The operation was full of risk. Five Royal Navy vessels supported by a submarine were to leave UK waters in the afternoon of Boxing Day. Once at the target, they would offload the commandos into landing craft, who would then head towards their objectives. As the commandos made their way to shore, HMS Kenya's 12 mighty six-inch guns would open up and soften the targets ready for the assault. Overhead, Royal Air Force's main role was to provide air cover and lay down a blanket of smoke to mask the commando's landing. This was to be vital for a successful assault. If the landing crafts were targeted by the German batteries, the attack would be over. After only two weeks training, Durnford Slater reported to Mountbatten that they were ready. Operation Archery was on. On December the 24th, the men of three commando sent final letters to their loved ones before embarking on the first leg of their journey to Norway. They were off to ruin Christmas for the Nazis. On the morning of the 27th, the small Royal Navy flotilla Entering the Norwegian fjord had thankfully avoided any enemy submarines. The waters were mysteriously quiet, perhaps because the Germans were enjoying the Christmas festivities. On board the troop carrier, Prince Leopold was Major Jack Churchill. I can imagine him unpacking his bagpipes and sharpening the blade of his broadsword as he prepared for battle. Perhaps all the while, quietly humming a Scottish marching tune to himself. Churchill would have been chomping at the bit to get stuck in and raise hell amongst the enemy. Just before going into a very hairy job, I, I'm quite quiet. I don't 
necessarily like to talk too much. Whereas there's other lads that, that have to talk and crack jokes. And so there's always, there's a mix because ultimately we're all individuals, but there is a quiet air of anxiety as well. So when I used to command an operation, one of the things I would like to go and do would be go and speak to all the other people in the patrol who are going to come with me. And it wasn't necessarily because I was consciously thinking, right, I don't want to go and G everybody up and make sure that you know, they're ready for this. It was more that just walking around and talking to people and seeing how they were preparing and how confident they were, it just completely put me at ease. H hour had arrived. In the still waters of the freezing fjord, the two troop ships began unloading the commandos. They climbed into the US-made Higgins landing crafts, which were strapped to the side of the hull, ready for their run ashore. As they did, the low hum of the approaching RAF Hamden bombers from 50 Squadron could be heard. HMS Kenya's huge naval turrets swiveled her guns toward the first target, the coastal artillery site that protected the islands. With a rev of the engine, the landing craft surged forward, the majority aiming for South Baltimore, where the German garrison was based. The others, including Churchill, set off towards the island of Morloy, location of the main coastal defences in the fjord. As the Higgins boats bounced through the water, the German batteries remained thankfully silent. It looked like they had caught the enemy napping. I would suggest surprise is probably the most important ingredient to any sort of attack, whether it's an ambush or otherwise. Surprise is what it's all about, because when you're attacking somewhere, they're normally in a location of their choosing. They've had an opportunity to bed in, to build defences, because it is ultimately the only sort of one-upmanship you've got on the enemy. Unknown to the flotilla, a German lookout had already spotted the approaching ships in the fjord and was sending a message through to South Vorgsoy. If the Germans were alerted, it would mean that they would be sitting ducks, powerless against the German coastal artillery. The raid would be over before it had even begun. Hello! I hope you're enjoying this episode of Amazing War Stories. I'm Ed Sayer, co-founder and producer of this show, and I just wanted to tell you about our new website, AmazingWarStories.com. Inside, you can find out more about our podcast, take a deep dive into some of the weapons and equipment used by our heroes, or you can sign up to our awesome newsletter, where we give you the lowdown on military museums, host fun reader polls, and of course, feature little-known amazing war stories that Bruce and I have come across during our research. So after you finish listening, please take time to visit. And if you think you have an amazing war story you'd like us to feature, then do get in touch. Just click on the link on our show notes. AmazingWarStories.com, the home of military heroes. The phone rang at Battery Commander Helpman Budzinger's headquarters on Morloy Island. The caller tried to raise the alarm. Amazingly, however, the commander's orderly was cleaning his officer's boots. And so ignored the phone call. It was just the break the Allied Raiders needed. With the commandos well on their way, the British warships now opened fire. (laughs) 
The noise was deafening, with shells whistling over their heads. The raiders watched as the first impacts shook the German backwards. Next, HMS Kenya fired a number of star shells, illuminating the island in a brilliant white light before joining the deadly barrage with her monstrous guns. The island was enveloped in a cloud of smoke and fire as the ordnance smashed into the gun batteries and flimsy buildings. The smell of cordite saturated the sea air as the sound of bagpipes playing March of the Cameron men was heard over the roar of the engines. The men on board of the landing craft stared in awe at the destruction being dished out to the tiny island. Mad fighting Jack wondered if there was going to be anything left for him to attack. In just nine minutes, 20 naval guns had fired over 400 shells into an area less than 300 square yards. The effect was cataclysmic. Meanwhile, on the other side of the fjord, the landing craft, headed by Lieutenant Colonel Dunford Slater, neared the beach of Balto. He fired his flare pistol and a bright red light arced through the dark sky. The signal for the naval bombardment to stop and for the hand and bombers to release their smoke. The RAF's phosphorus munitions would produce a thick bank of fog to cover their landing. The lead plane spotted the signal, but was struck by anti-aircraft fire, and tragically, one of its bombs veered off course and hit a landing craft, killing two men outright and terribly burning the others. Despite this early loss, the commandos were safely ashore and cocking their weapons, they moved swiftly on. The small town of South Vargso consisted of a half mile long main street, which ran parallel with the fjord. Its fish oil factories were closest to the razors as they were located facing the water. Everything was to be destroyed. As the demolition teams got to work on the warehouses, the rest of the attack force rushed into town. Durnford Slater now set up his headquarters on the beach in order to coordinate the attack, but immediately ran into his first problem. Some of the men's radios didn't seem to work properly and he had trouble reaching them. Now he had to rely on runners to deliver his orders. Communications is vital and if, if your equipment, if the technical equipment goes down, you've got to go back to basics. There's a saying, we use it in the Special Forces, called no comms, no bombs. If you can't call in the bombs, you've got nothing to bail yourself out of the stuck. At the other end of the town, in the main barracks, the German soldiers heard the gunfire from the water and looked at each other in confusion. They descended into chaos, scurrying around, trying to find their weapons and looking for someone to tell them what to do. This was the last thing they had expected, particularly at Christmas. However, the seasoned mountain troops instantly knew what was happening and prepared themselves for war. Grabbing their sniper rifles, the sergeant majors ordered their men to find high ground to begin the defence. Meanwhile, the British had begun to move through the edge of the town, but very quickly ran into stiff resistance. The counter-attack was a lot more challenging than they had expected. Then, the horror began. 
One German sniper lying on the roof of the hotel, the tallest building in the town, stabilised his position. Looking through his sights, he saw a British commando running across the road. Holding his breath, he steadied his aim on the unsuspecting soldier. The crack of the round reverberated around the valley. The soldier lay lifeless on the ground. The white snow now crimson red. Sniper fire is absolutely petrifying. So if you're an advancing unit of men and you suddenly get pinned down because you're taking what is called effective enemy fire, which means there's bullets landing around your feet or they're hitting people. You cannot move. There's no point moving until you've identified that firing point. Normally, the best way to try and locate is by movement. So you have to pick people to start running around and draw fire. So hopefully the sniper will give away his firing point, but that means blokes are gonna die and it's unnerving. Meanwhile, over on Morlaw Island, Major Jack Churchill and his men had easily silenced the remaining guns and cleared the threat. He was now itching to get back into the fight. Across the water, he could see the battle unfolding and his trusted Claymore twitched in his hand frustratedly. Contacting Durnford Slater over the radio, he informed the Colonel that he had taken his objective. Then came the news he wanted to hear. The attack was stalling and his presence was needed. Jack Churchill was on his way to wreak havoc in Vargso. Back on the beach, the Colonel, knowing that Churchill and his men were on the way, decided to leave his command post and move into town to redirect the stuttering attack. By now, the elite German snipers were in danger of stopping the assault entirely, but still the British didn't give up. They continued methodically, grenading their way from building to building. In true Christmas spirit, the enthusiastic Norwegian civilians also got stuck in. Like twisted Santa's helpers, they carried sacks of explosives up from the waterfront to help the commandos clear their own houses of Nazis. It was a sign of goodwill that spurred the British on. Clouds of acrid smoke rose into the bright morning sky and the colourful Norwegian buildings were consumed with fire, while the sound of sniper shots periodically rang out through the streets. It was an apocalyptic vision, as far from Christmas as you could possibly get. However, for the commandos, things were starting to get desperate. Ammunition was beginning to run low, and Durnford Slater was losing men. If they couldn't get control of the town soon, all would be lost. Not only that, they'd run into a pinch point, a building near the centre of town. The large house had good vision across the whole street and it was easy to defend. The colonel knew he had to take it. So a hard point is an area of the enemy's position that is particularly difficult to overcome because you're essentially going straight up against the enemy's strength. It's quite intimidating knowing that you're going to come up against these sort of positions because it's all well and good having a lot of firepower and having certain tactics under your belt but 
you're not really going to know how to do it until you get there. I'd say it's more psychologically draining than physically because you're trying to think, right, hang on a minute, how are we going to skin this cat? The commandos edged their way along the street. Then one after the other, three men dropped like rag dolls. Each hit by a sniper. The rest of the soldiers dashed to a nearby woodshed next to a garage for cover. 30 men, including Durnford Slater, crouched in the small space. They were pinned down. Bullets tore lethal splinters from the logs as they tried to work out what to do next. The situation was grim. They needed to move, but had no idea where the fire was coming from. Being out in the open also meant certain death. Being pinned down massively affects you psychologically because ultimately there is confidence that comes from your momentum and then all of a sudden you've lost that momentum. The sort of punch has been taken out of you, winded, both you know from your own physical movement but also your mindset. You're already thinking, hang on a minute, this, this isn't going according to plan. Then one of the men spotted the muzzle flash of a sniper rifle in the top window from the building. At least they now knew where the danger was coming from. The order was given to rapid fire and 30 men poured lead into the sniper's position. The enemy marksmen slumped forward over the sill. However, they still needed to deal with the remaining Wehrmacht soldiers inside. Storming the building with a front assault was not an option. They didn't have enough men. Just then, one of the lads turned up with a jerry can full of petrol. They would smoke them out. Under a wall of suppressive fire, a single commando ran forward with a bucket of gasoline. Pouring it through a window, it was quickly followed up with a grenade. Merry Christmas, Hitler. A dull thud shook the wooden frame, and moments later, the building was engulfed by an inferno. The fleeing enemy was scythed down in a burst of Bren gunfire. The balance of the battle had now tipped decisively back in the raiders' favour. But the Germans weren't ready to give up that easily. The elite mounted troops had taken a last stand in Vargso's hotel. The building requisitioned by the Wehrmacht for their HQ in the area. So far, the commandos had levelled the fish factories and arrested dozens of Quislings but frustratingly hadn't uncovered any intelligence of significance and they didn't want to leave empty-handed. Durnford Slater knew that the German HQ at the Alverson Hotel was where it would most likely be contained. The attack had been going on for over four hours and he knew he didn't have much time left before enemy reinforcements arrived. He had to get in the hotel, but he needed more men. Suddenly, through the cacophony of war, a familiar sound reached his ears. Bagpipes! Churchill had arrived alongside a captain called Bill Bradley, who had got his hands on a mortar. Mad Jack Churchill was totemic. He would have been an icon in those commando units, and therefore a huge source of morale. And I think also when you are in those moments just before you come into contact with the enemy, and you're worried and you're not sure how it's going to go. Having somebody like him at the front, playing the bagpipes, carrying his sword, completely confident it's going to be fine, would have really helped. He and his men bombarded the hotel with a relentless barrage of fire. Then 
in a strange yuletide irony, one mortar shell dropped perfectly down the chimney of the hotel. But instead of delivering presents and Christmas cheer, it brought death and destruction to the remaining enemy inside. The explosion was immense. The building immediately engulfed in fire and smoke. The battle was over. The commandos had won. The last remaining Germans surrendered. Durnford Slater curse, however. There was no chance of recovering any intelligence from that inferno. Meanwhile, on the fjord, their luck was about to change. The Royal Navy destroyers continued their sweep for the enemy, and they were soon rewarded. An armed trawler, a couple of Norwegian steamers, and a Dutch ship were all heading to the island, the best the Germans could muster in such a short time. Seeing the Royal Navy ships bearing down on them, these modified armed vessels instantly opened fire with anti-aircraft guns. But they were no match for the British destroyers, who quickly disabled them. On one trawler, Thoen, the boarding party found the captain's code books, which contained a wealth of secret radio call signs of every German vessel in Northern Europe. It was a massive intelligence find, and perhaps the biggest Christmas present the Allies had received so far. At 12.30, five hours after the attack had begun, Durnford Slater declared the town free from Germans. Demolitions continued in earnest, levelling the town and factories until they were rubble and ash. With the destruction complete, he realised it was now time for the commandos to withdraw. It had been a complete success, with the enemy routed, a town a fiery inferno and a massive intelligence hall to round it off. The commandos headed wearily back to the landing craft and the waiting ships. They were finally on their way home for the Christmas they never had. Chris Mann thinks the raid was more significant than perhaps many at the time believed. This is the building block that leads you to Sicily uh, in 1943, and, and I would probably argue Normandy in 1944. You know, the commandos are the spearhead of those operations too. And if you just scale um, archery up, you have the basis, the, the, the I don't know, the keystone, shall we say, uh, to the, the massive invasions which involve hundreds of thousands of men later in the war. Most importantly, however, this raid ensured the survival of the commandos and cemented the value combined operations. Sadly, the toll was heavy for both sides in the raid. Quite a price in human sacrifice for families to bear over the Christmas period. Germany lost nine ships, four aircraft were shot down and 150 servicemen were killed, with 98 captured. The combined Operation Force lost 51 men, with 61 wounded. The RAF took the highest toll. 11 aircraft were shot down and 31 crewmen were killed. Jack Churchill, the flamboyant Claymore wielding officer, won an MC for his actions that day to complement the one he had already earned at Dunkirk. Unfortunately, he was captured in 1944 and because of his name, was flown to Berlin and interrogated as it was thought he was related to Winston Churchill. 
He spent the rest of the conflict in two prisoner of war camps, which he repeatedly escaped from, eventually with success in April 1945. He died at the ripe old age of 89 and was one of the true characters in British military history. He definitely deserves centre stage in another amazing war story at some point. Our other hero, Lieutenant Colonel John Durnford Slater, thankfully for him, had a slightly quieter end to the war. He retired with an honorary rank of brigadier. He became an estate bursar at Bedford School, but tragically lost his life in 1972 in a railway accident. Durnford Slater later received the Distinguished Service Medal for his leadership on this raid. A final word from Colonel Nick Cavill. What makes the Second World War so extraordinary for me is that no one was immune from its impact, and that's much like the pandemic today. And amidst all of this, I think it's really important to remember those people in our armed forces who are currently serving overseas. They're away from their loved ones, and they're putting themselves in harm's way on our behalf. Global operations continue 365 days a year and certainly don't stop for Christmas. So as we all recover from this festive period, and indeed all the events of the past year, I think it's worth spending a moment to reflect on those men and women, both military and civilian, who don't stop work whilst we do, and are willing to lay down their lives in the service of their country. Jason Fox is also a passionate advocate for ex-service personnel. When I think back on some of my past Christmases, I actually found them really hard work. I do think it came initially from the impact of war fighting. It's a difficult time because you can feel so alone. And I found myself on so many occasions being in like a a nice family unit and getting ready to celebrate Christmas, which is supposed to be a fun time, you know, a time of coming together. And I just felt so scared and or just going quiet or, or making excuses to be on my own. There are organisations out there that belong to all of the services that support veterans in this very difficult time. One that's very close to me is the Royal Marines Charity. They help with veterans and their dependents and they are there to support them through difficult times after they've served. So if you could please give generously, links of how to do so are on the show's notes and the amazing War Stories social pages. I'm going to leave you with one more thought. We must always be strong in times of adversity and help support each other. I hope by telling these stories, we all get a little inspiration to battle on, just as these heroes did when they faced another great peril. The Military Wives Choirs are another wonderful charity worthy of our support with over 2,000 members in choirs across the world. They have a beautiful song called Brave from their album Remember. Alongside the choirs, it appropriately features Laura Wright and the Royal Marines Corps of Drums. So I'm going to let them lead us out. Thanks for listening. If you need support yourself or wish to donate to any of the causes we have mentioned, there are links on how to do so in our show notes. Merry Christmas, everyone. It doesn't get easier with time Though you've been gone, you are here in my mind 
to know there are others like me through adversity. Could you take up this, or would you fall under the weight to hold your hand, hold your heart, to shine a light through the dark? We stand. This episode of Amazing War Stories was written and researched by Charlie Phillips. It was executive produced and directed by Ed Sayer. The associate producer is Lois Crompton. Editing was by Tony Simmons. 3D mastering and sound design is by the Vaudeville Sound Group. And the music is composed by Extreme Music.